Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. And welcome to the first Pick a Flick of 2016. I'm your host, Emma Platt, and joining me tonight are Andrew Brooker and Dave Bond. Hello. Good evening. So tonight, it's a little bit different than our usual setup. We have a kind of a a special, if you will. Um, As usual, our films have been nominated by the listeners, your good selves, but we've kind of seen it tonight. So without further ado, let's jump straight in and pick a flick. Our first film tonight is Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs, and that, spoiler alert, is the theme of tonight's podcast. Reservoir Dogs is a 1992 American neo-noir crime thriller that depicts the events before and after a botched diamond heist. The film was the feature-length debut of director and writer Quentin Tarantino. Tarantino and criminal-turned-author Edward Bunker had minor roles. It incorporates many, many themes that have become Tarantino's hallmark violent crime, pop culture references, profanity, and non-linear storytelling. The film has become a classic independent film and a cult hit. You don't tip? No, I don't believe in it. You don't believe in tipping? Do you know what these chicks make? They make shit. Don't give me that. She don't make enough money, she can quit. <laughs> I don't even know a fucking Jew would have the ball to say that. Let me just get this straight. You don't ever tip, huh? I don't tip because society says I have to. All right, I mean, I'll tip if somebody really deserves a tip. If they really put forth the effort, I'll give them something extra. But, I mean, it's tipping automatically. Uh, it's for the birds. <laughs> I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they're just doing their job. Hey, this girl was nice. She was okay. I mean, she wasn't anything special. What's special? Take you in the back and suck your dick. <laughs> <laughs> I'd go over 12% for that. Hey, look, I ordered coffee, right? Now, we've been here a long fucking time. She's only filled my cup three times. I mean, when I order coffee, I want it filled six times. Six times? Well, you know, what if she's too fucking busy? 
Words too fucking busy shouldn't be in a waitress's vocabulary. Excuse me, Mr. Pink, but the last fucking thing you need is another cup of coffee. <laughs> Jesus Christ, I mean, these ladies aren't starving to death. They make minimum wage. And I used to work minimum wage, and when I did, I wasn't lucky enough to have a job the society deemed tip-worthy. You don't care they'd count on your tips to live? You know what this is? It's the world's smallest violin playing just for the waitresses. You don't have any idea what you're talking about. These people bust their ass. This is a hard job. So is working at McDonald's, but you don't feel the need to tip them, do you? Well, why not? They're serving you food. But no, society says, don't tip these guys over here, but tip these guys over here. That's bullshit. Waitressing is the number one occupation for female non-college graduates in this country. It's the one job basically any woman can get and make a living on. The reason is because of their tips. Fuck all that. Jesus Christ. I mean, I'm very sorry the government taxes their tips. That's fucked up. That ain't my fault. I mean, it would appear that waitresses are one of the many groups the government fucks in the ass on a regular basis. I mean, if you show me a piece of paper that says the government shouldn't do that, I'll sign it. Put it to a vote, I'll vote for it. But what I won't do is play ball. And it's non-college bullshit you're giving me. I got two words. So, it's it's a, a cult hit. What do we think about that? Do we agree, disagree? Oh, without a doubt, it... It's easily Tarantino's best film for me. I absolutely adore it. And every time I watch it, I just I sit with a massive grin on my face the entire way through. Definitely. Uh, it was my favourite Tarantino for years, and I actually managed to see it on the big screen. Not on not on first release, bizarrely, because we were way past the era of sort of video nasties and stuff. It wasn't given a home release for about three or four years. Um, it sort of came out not long on, on video not long after natural born killers came out on the big screen but it got a re-release in sort of mid 94 and i saw it on the big screen so it was the first tarantino i ever saw and it was my favorite for a very very long time i'm, I'm not sure that it is now but i, I watched it again tonight and it, it, it's the tightest film he's ever done in terms of uh, scripting and editing it's extremely well acted and it is designed despite its lack of visuals for the big screen it's it's not my favorite but I think I think Reservoir Dogs kind of gets overlooked in favour of Pulp Fiction more. But I I didn't see it for I didn't see any Tarantino films till I was about twenty, to be honest. So I didn't see this until quite recently. But it's much like Pulp Fiction. I knew quite a lot about it because of like the it's lampoons quite a lot in cult in mm. pop culture. Like I think I remember seeing. On the Simpsons, an itchy and scratchy skit of the dancing scene where he sliced off the guy's ear. Yeah. So it's one of those things. Like I was aware of it before I'd actually seen the film. Um, it, it was infamous more than anything else for a period of time. It was, you know, it was yeah, sort of Daily Mail, where you know, and that those sort of that sort of ilk were like it's the decline of Western civilization. A bloke being cut, ears being cut off, and you go and watch the film expecting. Basically, the clockwork orange of its generation, you know, and, and mainly because the word ultraviolence sort of came to mind. And when you see it, it's it's a dialogue heavy film. Most elements of violence are, are off screen. There's quite a lot of blood in it, but it is it is a film about the dynamic of people who don't trust each other. It uh, it, it was completely missold to the public in some respects. I remember all the time Kill Bill came out. I think I was in college. I remember reading a lot in the newspapers at the time about Tarantino being an ultra-violent director and don't go see this film. And they kind of... And maybe it's because I'm desensitised, but it didn't, like you said, it didn't seem to me like the point of this film was the violence. It's definitely... I remember listening to Kevin Smith talk once and he said 
if you put on a Tarantino film and shut your eyes before you knew it was coming on, you would know it was Tarantino by the dialogue, by the, the writing and things. And that first scene, the whole, like, a virgin discussion, is kind of like a... It's a classic Tarantino scene, if you get what I mean. It's still one of the best bits of dialogue put to screen ever, Tarantino or not. Yeah, I'd, I'd go along with that. Um, and the whole tipping thing, you get a ver- it's very good shorthand for who they all are. And the ones you don't get much of, I mean, basically, uh, Mr. Blue you know, literally has one line in that scene, but he doesn't. you don't really see him in the rest of the film. You need to know who Mr. White, nice guy Eddie, What's the main guy? Go Joe, and you need to know Mr. Orange, Mr. Pink. You need to know who they are, and that scene gives it to you straight away. I think as well, it came out at a very, an interesting time for independent American cinema because it came out. It was um, premiered at Sundance in 1992, and it was picked up by Miramax, which, you know, were well known for picking up like the indie films. They picked up Sex Lies and Videotapes, and then they distributed Clerks and things like that. If you read Peter Biscan's Down and Dirty Pictures, that kind of gives you like an overview of that kind of period of time from the late, late 80s up until about the early 2000s and how Reservoir Dogs kind of helped, along with Sex, Lies and Videotapes, I would tell it really gave a kickstart to the indie movement of the 90s. Yeah, just to, just, just to second that, Peter Biskin's, yeah, that, that book's terrific, and just as well is 70s equivalent, Easy Riders, I Raging Bulls is absolutely have terrific. I reread Easy Riders, Raging Bulls so many times. It was the first... Probably the better book of the two, but they're both it, Yeah, I, I think they agree. It was the first book mm-hmm. I ever bought that was about, like, film history, and it just sucked mm-hmm. me in so much. It's They're really, really good books if you're interested in, like, film history and how social times are changing also another one i would recommend is scenes of a revolution by mark harris it's it's a little bit before easy riders raging bulls it's takes it's just set on the 1968 best picture oscar nominations and how those films came to be and how different they were but that's also a really good book if you're interested in film history you know when you get that feeling that you're being outclassed by everybody else <laughs> around you i'm sitting there i'm having to write notes on all these books because i've not heard of any of these and Wow. Okay. <laughs> well, I've only read. I've read two of the three, but the, the two of the three I've read are the same author. Yeah. To be fair, so I read Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Thought this is terrific, and then he released Down and Dirty Pictures, which is more about Miramax than anything yeah. else. And I mentioned. I mean, we'll come to it a little bit later on, I'm sure, as as we talk about Tarantino. Um, in some respects, he, his link up with Miramax and the Weinstein's has been the best and worst thing that, that could have happened to him. But it certainly launched a guy who was prolifically writing and getting nothing made by himself. And uh, it was the interest of Harvey Keitel as well that, that got this to the big screen. But it, it's a really... Uh, and also, it did seem to resurrect the, the film soundtrack as opposed to score mm-hmm. as a thing. Yeah, um, it's interesting, Dave, you were saying about it, um, the re-release in the UK... It was actually mm. banned on home release in the UK until 1995, and that's why it was re-released yeah. in UK cinemas in June 1994. Which must have been like a, a couple of months after Pulp Fiction, I'd have yeah, thought. Yeah, so it was about that time. Um, I mean, it's really strange to yeah. think now that that was banned on video. I mean, I think you were saying it, it was later than the video nasty thing, but I think when this was released, the James Bulger murder had happened the year before, 1993, and it kind of reignited, reignited all that mm. banned this sick 
filth, which was the iconic Daily it, Mail it, headline, it, wasn't it? <laughs> it's incredible, though. In the, in this, yeah, because you had Child's Play three yeah. and all the rest of it. But I mean, certainly, we I think we, we've talked about that in the past because that's obviously quite near and dear to your heart. Um, no, that's, that's know, the wrong but... word, near and dear to my heart. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, perhaps it is. I, I mean, quite. It's it's something that obviously is is. I can't think of another phrase Mental. for it, but you know Charles what I mean. Charles Play scarred me for life. We all know that. Uh, no, not Charles Play, but the whole, the whole James Bolger thing, obviously, yeah. was you You are from that city. Um, we talked about it on another podcast a while ago. But um, I, I, I found it odd, because when I think of me, video nasties, I think of, like, the Evil Dead. Yeah. And that, the banning of that, and that was very much an 80s phenomenon. Because Tarantino stuff is not nowhere close to the violent levels of, of the actual video no, nasties, no. is it? It smacks of someone who's not seen it. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's just, we need to be seen to be banning this, as opposed to it's inherently worthy of a ban. The thing is, when you ban something, it just becomes more popular anyway. It, it's just, it's like when the, the interview came out, and they were like, we're not going to show it, because North three are going to bomb us all. Like, everyone wants to see it then, and it was a load of shit. But it's one, it's a good way to get people interested in your film. But I think, what, like, the video nasties to me, it is a, it's a totally 80s thing. Absolutely, and the film, if anything, I don't know what you think, Andrew, but it's it's morally ambiguous more than anything, more than anything else. Because, I mean, the worst character in the film, in terms of you know being a complete psychopath, is Mister Blonde, but he shows he shows extreme sort of honor amongst thieves and loyalty. He could have he could have shot the rest of them straight away. Yeah, I mean, the thing what I get whenever I watch uh, Reservoir Dogs, especially, is you kind of it plays out like I don't know. I mean, any other kind of workplace drama comedy whatever you want to watch but it just happens to be that their workplace is robbing banks yeah i kind of agree with that andrew i, I think that's more we'll get to that more in pulp fiction because I, I certainly think that's more self-consciously trying to draw the difference between what they do and who they are it's mm. like if you look at the opening scene mm. a lot of them sitting around the diner i mean obviously i i don't think i've ever had that particular conversation with the people i work with but you sit around your your, your meeting table or whatever were your workmates, and you just you chat bollocks, didn't you? And yeah, basically the difference what there done. is the difference between that and Pulp Fiction, though, is I mean we don't know what the rules of sort of working for Marcellus are, but Jules and I've forgotten his name all of a sudden. Vincent. Vincent. Jules and Vincent know each other well. They could talk about anything, yeah. but they choose to talk inane shit because they're just going to work and it's just another day. In Pulp in Reservoir Dogs, they don't have a choice. They're not supposed oh, that, to know. They're not. They they don't know anything about each other. They've yeah. got no choice but to talk shit because they they can't say how's the wife. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I I get what you mean. Yeah. I, yeah. You definitely get that with pop fiction as well. I'll agree with that one. But yeah. It just kind of feels like just talking inane shit. And actually, to be able to write people talking inane shit is a gift. Without it being really self conscious. Yeah. And and the thing is, there were so many copycats in this era. You know, right the way through to maybe the early two thousands. Because with Lockstock and all the rest of it, which I'm not knocking particularly, but that sort of it it pushed a wave of sort of pseudo gangster films into the early sort of 2000s, and they all had scenes of people talking shit to each other because that's what Tarantino did. And and there are films in his career where I don't think his dialogue pops, but this certainly isn't one of them. It's such a consistent f- film. I, I can't think of a frame I'd cut. No. You know, whether, whether there are films you prefer or not, there is not a frame of this film I'd cut. I think it's terrific all the way through. So I think we'll end our discussion on Reservoir Dogs there. Thank you to Andrew Cavero for his nomination. And we will move on to our next picked flick. That was a tongue twister. 
Pulp Fiction is a 1994 American black comedy and crime film, also written and directed by Tarantino. It's a it's iconic for its eccentric, eclectic dialogue, ironic mix of humour and violence, non-linear storyline, and has a host of cinematic allusions and pop, pop culture references. The film was nominated for seven Oscars, including Best Picture. Tarantino and Avery, his writing partner, won for Best Original Screenplay, and it won the Palme d'Or at the 1994 Cannes Film Festival. It revitalised the career of its leading man, John Travolta, who received an Academy Awards nomination, as did co-stars Samuel L. Jackson and Uma Thurman. What does Marcellus Wallace look like? What? What country are you from? What? what? What ain't no country I ever heard of. They speak English in what? What? English, motherfucker! Do you speak it? Yes. Then you know what I'm saying. Yes. Describe what Marcellus Wallace looks like. What? Say what again. Say what again. I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time. He's black. Go on. He's bald. Does he look like a bitch? What? Does he look like a bitch? No! Then why you try to fuck him like a bitch, Brett? I did. Yes, you did. Yes, you did, Brett. You tried to fuck him. And Marcellus Wallace don't like to be fucked by anybody except Mrs. Wallace. You read the Bible, Brett? Yes. Oh, there's this passage I got memorized. Sort of fits this occasion. Ezekiel 25, 17. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. Pulp Fiction to me is the first year film study student film of choice. <laughs> I, I went to university in the mid 90s so yeah every room you went into had like tarantino posters on it and more often than not it was uh mia wallace <laughs> when i went to university in 2006 and on the first day of our introduction to film course our tutor the mighty dr david sofa who now teaches at edinburgh university basically was like if anyone writes an essay on pulp fiction i'll scream he taught you then you moved to edinburgh yeah. Let's get him away. Let's get him away. I, like I said, this was I saw Kill Bill before I saw Pulp Fiction, and I was about 20 when I saw it. And I kind of understand why film study students love it, because I remember watching it and going, oh my God, this is how you make a film. Like, I was so blown away by it, by, like, every, like the dialogue in it and the way the story's kind of all linked together. And I, I was just really, like, it kind of blew my mind for a little bit in a really inane sort of way, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I kind of think that whatever Tarantino does now and, and whatever we end up preferring, this is, this, is, this is the first line of his obituary. This is, this is the film he'll be remembered for. This is his iconic film. 
And it would probably be top for me if it wasn't for the whole Gold Watch storyline. I'm, I'm not that interested when, preferably, uh, Jules and Vincent are on the screen. But when neither of them are on the screen, the film doesn't interest me at all. But not necessarily in terms of acting, but in terms of screen presence, I've never quite seen anything like Samuel L. Jackson on the big screen in this doing the Path of the Righteous Man speech. It's utterly magnetic. It it really, really is. I mean, you can kind of see why that's been lampooned and kind of parodied so much. Mm. I mean, even in a Captain America Winter Soldier, when they think Nick Fury's dead, spoilers, sorry everyone, his, the gravestone says Ezekiel whatever, the path of the righteous man. Like, I think that's yeah. kind of cool. I kind of like that. <laughs> it's incredible. The other thing you've got to remember is Samuel L. Jackson makes, I mean, it's an actually, it's a hangover from like a drug past with him that he keeps himself very, very busy to keep himself clean. So he's been known to sort of film up to sort of six films a year. But Pulp Fiction was the film that really broke him. Now, that, that, I mean, in mainstream consciousness, the film that made him a critical darling was Jungle Fever. But most of the, the general public would, would have seen him in Coming to America, robbing McDowell's. And they might have seen him, well, they probably would remember him from Goodfellas. He, he shot in Goodfellas. So this guy did kind of come out of nowhere in terms of the public consciousness. And John Travolta then was known for Saturday Night Fever and Grease. And that was it. So such counterintuitive casting and... It's been a signature of his career ever since Tarantino that he he can he picks the right person for the role and and it reminded us what a terrific caster of actors Quentin Tarantino can be. Yes, yeah, I said uh, I said something similar about Samuel Jackson this morning actually when we were watching Pulp Fiction and last night when we were watching Jackie Brown just as mm. a bit of a reminder. Both of those films have got this fantastic thing where so Tarantino has written and is directing Jackson. Jackson is just walking and talking. It's all he's doing. He's not doing anything in particular, but he's just walking and having a conversation, whether it be with Chris Tucker in uh, Beaumont, yeah. Yep. or with John Travolta in Pop Fiction. Just his presence, while he's just having a chat and having a walk, is just brilliant. Mm. It's just, Everything about his, his movements is just absolutely electric on the screen. I, I think, you know, and it's, he is that role. Where every time someone mentions Samuel Jackson, he will be that will be the first role you think of because it has to be it's just his role will because there's such an iconic scene in it as it goes i actually think jackie brown's a better performance or or certainly he it's more dominant in my mind when i think of him in tarantino i tend to think of jackie brown first but there's there's no doubt he'll be remembered for that scene more than almost anything else he ever does and the film sort of you know wraps around the whole gold watch story which is a matter of taste but i don't like it very much yeah the gold watching always kind of broke the uh the feeling of the rest of the film for me it just didn't quite fit well you you certainly when when the gold watch story finishes the screen goes black i think and then before it fades in you hear his voice samuel l jackson and i did think i watched it again this evening and, and you sort of think oh we're back brilliant and I don't mean, and also I do think it's the start of the era where I think a lot of the Gold Watch storyline is kind of, it's the only bit of the film that I think is shocking for shocking's sake. And I also think we're at the start of the era where Bruce Willis started not giving a shit. Yeah. And it's one thing to experiment with doing less, but I just don't like that part of the film. 
but but everything with Samuel L. Jackson and to a slightly lesser degree everything with John Travolta on it. I think he's absolute gold. And if the whole film was like that, it would be comfortably my favourite of his. Yeah, I think my my favourite always tends to bounce around what I've watched the most recently between mm. those two. Yeah. But I think Reservoir Dogs for me still sticks out as the top one because like you say, there's not a frame in that you could you could remove to improve it. Where there are parts of pop fiction that slow it down that don't quite fit, that I I don't think need to be there for the benefit of the film. Yeah, though running time's become more of an issue with him in recent years, because this film is just over two and a half hours, <laughs> but there's an awful lot to cram into it, to be fair. So yeah. I don't have an inherent problem with its running time. I don't think it's particularly baggy. It's just one of the stories I'm not that, that fond of. But I, I, do, I, I, I do think he showed himself here... At, what Reservoir Dog showed him as a, as a sort of high quality indie director, and this yeah. film showed that like the mainstream would embrace him too. So this will always be a very very special film in his canon. Oh, absolutely, without a doubt. Uh, yeah, and I think you're saying about like you know mainstream and embracing it, like he absolutely dominated the awards seasons last year. Not just in like the Independent Spirit Awards or like you know Cannes and things, but the Oscars, the Golden Globes, the BAFTAs, it, it won so many awards that year mm. in all these different type of, you know, your indies and your, your big award seasons, and it was... It's also where the Academy and other awards were on the sort of wrong side of, of history and conservatism, really, because I remember Tarantino won Best Original Screenplay for Pulp Fiction, and he said something along the lines of, on stage when he picked up his Oscar, he said something along the lines of, I guess this is the only one I'm winning tonight. And he didn't say it with any notable bitterness, but I think it was quite clear the Academy was never going to give Best Picture to Pulp Fiction. Um, and it, I think that year, I might have this wrong, but I'm pretty sure it gave it to Forrest Gump. 1994. And it, yeah, and for, I don't dislike Forrest Gump at all. I know, I know a lot of people turn their nose up at it, but it but was... It's very safe. Think, it's very Fiction. safe, and it's very... It's celebrating America as well. Yeah. Um, and I just think, you know, you had something... You had stuff like this, you had stuff like... Um, the uh, Shawshank Redemption as well in the same year and I think they are the films that have endured and will continue to endure. I, I totally agree with you. I think, especially what you said about the, the academies being on the, the wrong side, there's even like this kind of stigma now that to win an, you know, an Oscar you have to be playing a real person with some sort of disability Stability. or who struggle against yeah. the odds and, and all that kind of thing and it rings true. Well, American Sniper got nominated last year and I genuinely think it was one of the most offensively shit films I've ever seen <laughs> and, and I, I really like Clint Eastwood and I don't mind a slice of Americana I've got nothing against America but there is just you know some films just grab the academy because it's waving the flag yes. and that in and of itself doesn't make a great no, film. No I, I totally agree yes. although I did I did quite enjoy American Sniper and I would have thought it would have deserved it if it wasn't for you know Rubber Baby. Rubber Baby no, I just, I, yeah, I mean, that's a conversation for another time. If anyone wants to, if you, if anyone wants to nominate American Sniper, me and Andrew can have a fight. On um, in their, in their defence, Pulp Fiction, I was surprised to see that among the nominees as well. Not for any reason of quality, but we focus on it didn't win, but it was nominated, and that's quite brave actually. I mean, there's a gay rape in it. Yep. Before they had the uh, ten film maximum as well. Oh, yeah, this is back in the era. I mean, 
I'm sure most listeners will know this, but it's only since 2000 and, well, the 2010 Oscars for the 2009 films that they've yeah. gone to like, there's a certain threshold and it's up to 10 and it's usually nine or 10 films nominated. But back then it was the same as any other category. It was five. So for Pulp Fiction to be nominated is actually quite a feather in its cap. And I think it probably got that because of the can, uh, the Palm Door. Yeah, I think the Weinsteins as well really went all out mm. in the... I think there was there was a it run, did. and I can't, off the top of my head, I can't remember how many years it was, but there was a fair yeah. few years where a Miramax film won the best picture at the Oscars. There are some infamous examples. Shakespeare's, Shakespeare in Love is Yeah, um, I think it has a lot to do with the... the especially, this is obviously coming from the book Down of Dirty Pictures, the way they, the wine scenes are portrayed. They will take the film to like basically old people's homes <laughs> and things yeah. like that, and they, they they understand the they understand their voting. Yeah, they they really do. But when Tarantino passes, this will be the first thing that's mentioned. The infamous director of Pulp Fiction. This will be what he's really remembered for. It's a quintessential Tarantino film and I think some of his films have kind of they haven't got the same feeling about them like Death Proof doesn't really feel Tarantino-esque but this is like the ultimate Tarantino film series yes, I mean, it, 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 it isn't my favourite but that that is a taste thing and, and I think it's funny because Pick a Flick your Twitter feed and I think your Facebook feed went out and asked for people's favourites and people's worst and I would imagine Death Proof absolutely pissed the worst one. Um, with some, but well, I know we'll come to it. But my guess is, I would imagine there will be a winner. But I would imagine on the best, a lot of them got named, and that's a sign of quality. And it's a sign of the fact that these things are, you know, I ranked these films tonight on Facebook in response to somebody, and I'm sure if I rank them in a week's time, they'll be different. Uh, Pulp Fiction isn't my favourite, but it's certainly the most iconic, and it might actually be the best. move on to a little chat about Tarantino in general and the results of those polls that Dave was just talking about. We'd like to thank Steve Aldersley for his nomination of Pulp Fiction. You can find him on Twitter at InTheFrame1. He also has a link to his blog in the profile, so be sure to check that out. Now, as Dave said, on Facebook and Twitter this week, we asked people for their best and worst Tarantino films. Now, best. Kill Bill, got, Volume 1, got one vote. Tied with Jackie Brown, Reservoir Dogs two votes, Pulp Fiction four, and Inglorious Bastards with five. So Inglorious Bastards one. I have to say, wow. Inglorious Bastards is my favourite Tarantino film. Well, well, come on to that. <laughs> Worst, uh, Reservoir Dogs with one vote, Jackie Brown with two, Hateful Eight with two, and Death Proof with eight. Wow. That doesn't. That just doesn't surprise me. I'm a little bit surprised to see Reservoir Dogs getting those okay, votes. We'll have to hunt out the guy that voted for Reservoir Dogs. There's two, there's two of them. Tony, he will supply with that information. I couldn't. I don't. I was not given any yeah. names. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was going to vote, and then I suddenly realised I'm on the show. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'll just be like reading up my own vote. Um, I, did, I, I very much. I kind of hung back from voting, but then I wanted to defend Death Proof a little bit because I don't think it's the worst. So I did. Uh, okay, um, I'm going to let us see where Emma wants to take this actually before I start like commenting on best and worst. Okay, I don't hate Death Proof. Okay, I don't, but I haven't seen Hateful Eight and I haven't seen Jackie Brown, so I couldn't comment on. But eight people voted for Death Proof. I mean, it, it's, it's. 
Okay, I suppose of all the films I've seen, it's a, it's relative. <laughs> yeah, it's... it. I mean, I hate saying that, but it, it is. It's totally relative. I mean, I did hate Death Proof on first watching. I saw it in the cinema in two thousand and seven, and I was watching some woman I couldn't give two shits about texting somebody, <laughs> and I thought this is a, this is our legendary dialogue, and then like. Tarantino turned up and said tasty beverage and I thought I heard that in Pulp Fiction but the first set of girls were killed off girls sorry women were killed off and then it sort of started again with Rosario Dawson Zoe Bell etc and I thought the second half of the film was really good what I will say is Grindhouse came out as a as a blu-ray release of its own with the fake trailers and with Planet Terror and with the shorter cut that it that eliminated a lot of things like a very superfluous lap dance and all the rest of it. I mean, you know, if, I, if, it, I mean, if, it, if it was erotic, that would be one thing, but it was just, what's the point of this? And in its context, it's really good. And I now wish I'd seen Death Proof on the big screen. Uh, or sorry, I wish I'd Grindhouse. seen Grindhouse on the big screen. I don't really hate Death Proof the way I used to, but a lot of the, a lot of the characters aren't very interesting. And a lot of the dialogue sounds like somebody impersonating Tarantino, but it's a relative thing. That would be a lot of dire- a lot of decent directors' best films. When you when you talk about Grindhouse, Planetara, mm. I absolutely love Planetara. It was shulky and there was Cherry with the gun leg, and it had so many more interesting elements than they go Death together Proof. so well with the scratches. And you've got you know, and then it cuts to trailers, and you've got Machete. He gets the girls. And stuff like that, and it's great. I mean, it's really great as a double bill. And it's kind of where my thing with Death Proof, I don't hate it because I've I've seen it twice, and both times were part of a viewing of the entire Grindhouse thing. Mm. So by the time you get to Death Proof, not only is it not the worst thing you've ever seen, but actually it kind of fits in with everything else. I really enjoyed it as part of like the double bill and the trailers and the whole, I don't want to say experience because I watched it at home, so it's not that big an experience, but the whole... Yeah. The whole thing with you know the the two films and the trailers in the middle and the, the scratching and posts and all that, I thought it was great. Yeah, missing reel and when they come back, I know we're not talking about Death Proof, talking about Planet Terror here, but they yeah. come back after the missing reel and this character they hated. They- Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact: you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. Suddenly big mates with. And the, the, yeah. the you know, restaurants and like on that. fire as well, isn't it? Yeah, it, I mean, it's it, it, it's really odd. I mean, I had a terrible experience with it the first time. I, I walked out going, I can't believe what I've just seen. Because to that point, you know, I, I'd enjoyed most of what he'd done. It's grown on me over the years. That's all I can say. But is it the worst Tarantino film? Well, maybe worst is an, an, an unfair term because we're ranking good films by and large. But Death Proof is, is bottom of my Tarantino rankings. I think it would be interesting um, for people who voted for Death Proof to find out if they watch it as part of the Grindhouse Double Bill. Or... They won't have done if they're British. Did they... If they watched it in the cinema, I mean. I thought certain, I thought certain cinemas were showing the Grindhouse this no. country didn't get it. It was released in America in like something like April 2007, I think it was, and it flopped badly. Oh yeah. And, and then it was, and then it was, how can we like at least try to cover our asses? Okay, well we'll release them separately, and we'll try and get some more money out of Death Proof. It will be shorter. We can trade Tarantino's name. We can present a longer cut, etc. But I mean, it, it, it flopped really badly. There is no question. And it flopped everywhere else in the world as well. This film didn't do very well. It's interesting to see that Inglourious Bastards just be Pulp Fiction out by one vote. But that is my favourite Tarantino film. I love Glorious Bastards. What does well, well coming back to uh, can we come back to favorites? The reason I want to say that is Jackie Brown got some votes, and I know you haven't seen it, but I think Jackie Brown was a little bit jarring for people after Pulp Fiction. This relatively small film, although it's quite long, with relatively low stakes, with a middle-aged woman in the lead. The thing with Jackie Brown is it feels like Tarantino. It feels like a Tarantino film, like the dialogue's all there, but you can also tell that it's not original work. Do you know what I mean? Because it's, it's yeah, I haven't read the book. It's based on it's based on an Elmore Leonard book, isn't it? Yeah, I've read a couple of his. I've, I've not actually read Rum Punch, but I've read. How a is he? Because I haven't read anything of his. It's all right. It's fun crime films or fun crime yeah. books. Yeah, if you, like, you know, there's they're relatively inoffensive. Bit of bad language, a little bit of violence. Not an awful lot wrong with them. They're you know they're a bit of fun. I think now I really I hope I get this one right because he wrote Out of Sight as well, didn't he? Yes, he did. Yeah, I think yeah, he I did. Now, Out of Sight came out the following year. Yeah, and it had Michael Keaton's character was in both. Yeah. Now the thing with Jackie Brown, so Jackie Brown came out in '97. Yeah. So I was 15. 98 in this country, but yeah. Yeah. So I was I was 15, 16. There was there was no way I was watching anything in the order that it was made or anything at yeah. that point. At that point, I'd only watched. Pulp Fiction, maybe a year previous, because I'd happened to get the house to myself one night and it was on. So I sat and watched, I think it was the terrestrial TV premiere of Pulp Fiction, almost certainly advertising Jackie Brown coming out like the next couple of months. So I watched that, I read Out of Sight because of the film, and there's been a couple of others I've read since, but no, I never did read Rum Punch. But it, it has got that feeling of. Like Elmore Leonard, you can feel in those in that film as well. I, so, I mean, I must read some. I, I've never, I, I never have, but I, I remember seeing, I remember seeing Jackie Brown uh, just outside London with somebody I was seeing at the time, and I went in to see it. Really liked it. Came out, enjoyed it very much. We were still kind of pre-mass internet, and I remember speaking to my cousin, and I was like, "Have you seen Jackie Brown?" And I was really enthusiastic about it. 
and he hated it. And I, I later found out most people, most people, it seemed, weren't that fond. And it really surprised me. And I think Is a lot of it was... Because it was on, off the back of Pulp Fiction, which was literally a revelation in film at that point. Yeah, I guess you expect some you expect somebody to reinvent the wheel every time, but I, I genuinely I, I wouldn't be far away from putting excuse me, Tarantino's first three films on like a level plane. I, I kind of like them all. It depends on my mood. But Jackie Brown's really great. Jackie Brown I have only watched a couple of times and uh, most recently like last night. And it's definitely I definitely really like it. I think I'd have to watch it two or three more times before I say, yeah, for definite, it's up there with, with Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs. I think I'd put it on a level playing field with maybe Inglorious Bastards, which I, I really, it, really like. I think it was the first time that, like, I, I noticed that, like, Quentin Tarantino had patience, in as much as you watch Pulp Fiction and it's got a long running time, but it crams a lot into that running time. Yeah. But if you look at the first, I don't know, maybe 45 minutes of Jackie Brown. You're just hanging out with the characters. Yeah. There's not a lot happening. You know, it's very, you know, relevant to what, you know, the Hateful Eight when we get to it. But he started to, like, slow it down a little bit. And, yeah, it's a really good film. We would recommend it, Emma. And it, and it, his, his first three films kind of feel of a piece, whereas obviously when he comes back in the, in the 2000s, it suddenly feels a bit different and he starts using like a chapter structure and things like that. Well, he didn't, am I wrong in thinking after Jackie Brown, he didn't make a film until Kill Bill, Kill Bill which Kill Bill. was 2003. Yeah. I remember them interviewing him and they said, um, you know, why have you taken some lot so long off? And, and one of the, he said several things, but one of the things he said, well, I had other things to do. I had movies to watch and I had sex to have. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I really didn't want to picture that. No. Well, thanks very much. This jutting chin and a foot fetish. Thanks very much. Um, <laughs> it, no, he, he did nothing for years. And it's funny how you perceive time differently as you get older, because he did Jackie Brown like three and a half years after Pulp Fiction. And there was a lot of people thinking, well, what's taken him so long? Whereas, whereas a three-year gap now is nothing. That's pretty standard for a, a name director. But he did nothing until Kill Bill, but it was in gestation for a very long time. I know, for example, he gave it to Uma Thurman, the script. He wanted Uma Thurman as the bride, but she got pregnant. Yes, he waited yeah. for her, but, at the, but also on her 30th birthday. Now, she was born in 1970, so this can only be 2000. He gave her a he gave her a script for Kill Bill as a birthday present, but it didn't come out for another three and a half years after that. And I know she had a pregnancy, but a pregnancy is nine months plus maybe six months. You know, if you are an actress to physically get yourself in shape and all the rest of it. So it was long in gestation. There's no doubt, and I don't think we knew what we were going to get. And one of the reasons I think Kill Bill One is held in such high esteem, and I think it is anyway is because it's a little bit like, I don't know, GoldenEye or Casino Royale, going back to like my Bond roots, in that there's been like a long gap before it, and there's some pent-up demand. What do we think about the fact that Django Unchained didn't appear on either the best or the worst list? Do you think that's a fair assessment of the film, that it's just kind of middle-of-the-road Tarantino? Or... Django's in the bottom half. Again, that's relative. I watched it again last night. Django is a little bit like Pulp Fiction in that, but for a couple of things, it'd be right near the top. I kind of quite like westerns. I, mean, I really like Christoph Waltz. 
I think it's a beautiful film. I think there's some wonderful set pieces in it. It's too long. Mm. And I don't and I don't mind long films. I'll sit and watch a four hour film if it holds its running time. But Django Unchained has a specific twenty minutes I would snip out of it. And but for that it would be near the top. But because it's it's a beautiful film, it's got some great scenes in it, why would anyone put it near the bottom? Almost for me, by definition, it has to fall in the middle somewhere. <laughs> See, for me it, it falls right down the bottom for me. Really? It's very, very close. If it if it weren't for one other film, it would be at the bottom of my list. I what don't you it. like about it, Andrew? The whole thing. Oh, I well, that's pretty specific. In, I was bored <laughs> the entire time. I, no, that's unfair. The, what I felt when I sat watching it, I was like, I felt like it was missing Tarantino's dialogue. It didn't quite feel right. And the, the exception there is DiCaprio. That scene's electric, isn't it? Yeah, DiCaprio scene, scene is... Yeah. Spectacular! I and we don't even have to say which scene. Mm, No, no. (laughs) we know what we're talking about. But DiCaprio scene in that I thought was spectacular. That the whole thing was amazing to watch. But the rest of it, it didn't resonate with me at all. It didn't feel like Tarantino. I knew Tarantino was trying to do something a little bit different, but I don't know. It just I really didn't like it. It didn't sit with me at all. And I've only I've watched it one other time since it came out, and no, I still didn't really get on with it at all. I'm the same with a lot of Tarantino films in that they start. And I think, my God, this might be his best. And by the end, I'm like, no, it's not. Because <laughs> something in it has annoyed me, be it being too long or whatever. I actually kind of, even though even though they're different time periods, I do kind of put this alongside, uh, sorry, Inglorious Bastards. Not in terms of quality, but they kind of feel similar. But Inglorious Bastards was the last film um, edited by Sally Mankey who mm-hmm. worked with him right the way through that film and died, unfortunately, a year or so afterwards. And up till then, and this is the difference between long and excessively long, in that, like, Inglorious Bastards is well over two and a half hours. It, it takes its time. It's got an episodic structure. But I wouldn't take a frame out of it. Django no. Unchained is a few minutes longer. And suddenly, instead of having an equivalent that says to him, helps him make his choices. It's not about control, it's about working with him. Suddenly yeah. he's got Sally Menke's assistant, and all of a sudden the last two have been a little bit bloated. And it's not about length, it's about what should be there and what shouldn't. Yet yeah, that's the problem with Django for me. I actually think it's a pretty good film. Unfortunately, I do think Jamie Foxx is a bit of a charisma vacuum. I do kind of wish Will Smith had said yes. This was going to be my other side. I didn't like Jamie Foxx in it at all. Uh, now Jamie no, Foxx. I, I honestly think King Schultz, you know, uh, um, Christoph Waltz should have been like the lead, effectively, yeah. in terms of like Academy Award nominations. Yeah, he was kind of bland, wasn't he? Yeah, he he's done this to a couple of films I love as well. Like one of my all-time favorite films, he's the star of, and he's just awful in it. He's terrible in uh, any given Sunday. He's just horrendous oh. to watch. But. Django, he just felt like, obviously I know he is, literally he is the plot point for the entire film. They needed somebody much, much better than him for that role. If you can just go back to talking about uh, Christoph Waltz again. That first scene in Inglorious Bastards, where he goes into the farmer's house, oh my god, that little sort of shift in him from just like... You know, drinking the milk and interviewing him to, like, you know, just fucking shoot all these people onto the floor. And the way he, like, manipulates people about his um, his nickname, the Jew Hunter, 
Like when he's yeah. talking to the boss, he's like, oh, you know, it's it's not. But then to other people, he's like, this is what I do. This is my job. He's such a raging psychopath in that film. But he's quite childish at times as well. And I don't mean childish as he's spiteful. I mean laughing. Yeah. Laugh when he things. does that, that's a bingo. And at the end, he knows he's lost. And he's just like, right, this is what I want. And this is what you're going to give me. And this is what I'm going to do. He knows Hitler's fucked. And he's just out to save his own skin. But he plays that part with such charm and such a kind of quiet madness if you know and I, you know and listeners i did say on the pick a flick i think facebook feed i said like you'd find out the truth tonight and the truth is inglorious bastards is quentin tarantino's best film yes yes it is yes it is it's not his most iconic it's not his most showy it's his best film. it really no it... quentin tarantino didn't direct his best film Yes, he did, because if you're about to say true romance, we'll have a fight. Oh, over the internet, this could be fun. No, I love true romance. And frankly, anyone who casts Christian Slater needs their nuts cut off. (laughs) Because Christian Slater is only a star because his mother's a casting agent. He is toxic to anything he's in. And Tony Scott, with his blue background sex scenes that looks like the fucking Red Shoe Diaries... Is a bastardization of Tarantino. <laughs> if Tarantino had directed True Romance, it might be his best film, but he didn't, and it's shite. I love it. It's okay, Andrew, oh, because friend. I love you. <laughs> You're amongst I friends now, it. and that's okay. <laughs> but no, g- genuinely, I mean, joking aside, right? A lot of people whose tastes I, I respect have said they love True Romance, so there must be something in it. So fine. But I've always hated it, partly from casting, partly because it does feel like a tribute band. It feels like somebody else doing someone else's material. And I've never liked it. But of the films Tarantino has directed, Inglorious Bastards is fairly clear at the top. The cast is... Um, Brad Pitt in it is... He's amazing. I, it was the first Tarantino film I went out of my way to watch in the cinema. Not like, oh, I might go see Django. I was like, no, I really, really want to see this film. The whole, is it Frederick Zoller, the one, the sniper, they make the film about him? Yes, they do. That, um, what? what? A Nation's Pride or something like that? Nation's Pride, that's yeah, it, yeah. When he, at the end, when he like shifts with Shoshana and he's like, I got the feeling he was about to rape her or something in objection room. I think he probably was, but... That end bit where they're, they're trying to instigate that plan. I was so tense watching it. Um, and don't forget, like, I, I mean, I'm guessing on percentages here, but like 40% of this film is not in the British language, the English language. No. You know, it's very difficult. He gets wonderful performances out of everybody. I mean, that is a real actor's director that, you know, everybody in this film is absolutely terrific in whatever language, with the possible exception of Mike Myers, because that just comes <laughs> across as a bit of a comedy bit. Yeah. But he always said, nobody delivers my dialogue like Samuel L. Jackson. Well, when we get onto The Hateful Eight, that's probably true. But if there's anyone who's given him a run for his money, it's Christoph Waltz. I was so glad when he won the Oscar. It's not his native tongue, though, Emma. Do you know that it's like me going and being as good as a German actor in German? I can't say enough good things about his performance in this film. It's so multi-layered. It doesn't come across to me like he's a true believer, really, in this film. Except he's just like he's always talks about the Jews being rats. But no, he wants to do. It. He want. He, he is all about. 
I was about to say job satisfaction. I don't mean that. He's all about job performance. Yeah. I'm, I am the best at this. I don't care who I do it for. I'm the best at this. Yeah, there's a few scenes in that film that really stand out for me. The very first scene in the farmhouse, the scene in the bar with Michael Fassbender. Isn't that fantastic? And I never knew Diane Kruger. I mean, Darren Tarantino, there's a theme through his entire career of, like, resurrecting actors. And it's not a question of, like getting John Travolta, uh, not John Travolta, well, John Travolta was an example, obviously, but it's not a question necessarily of getting, say, Kevin Costner, who was, like, the biggest in the world 25 years ago, and putting him back there. Sometimes it's about showing you layers in actors you hadn't seen before. And Diane Kruger's a brilliant example. She was, like, she was Helen of Troy, in Troy, and she's just there as a pretty face, and we suddenly find out she's really good. And Tarantino found that in her. Mm. Well, he actually strangled her, didn't he? It was him who was strangling Diane Kruger in the last That's scene. Right. Which oh, that was his hand. That was his hands. He actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. he actually did that. Now, if you were, I'm not saying he's the greatest director in the world at all, but when you think about some of the things you respect in the great directors, Tarantino's got those things. You you look at Kubrick, who thinks about every intonation and hand gesture and everything else that anyone in his films does. Well, tell me you cannot isolate a scene in, in Glorious Bastards and everything is thought about. I think it's a fantastic film. It is. So for those people who voted in Glorious Bastards as Tarantino's best, we salute you here at Pick a Flick, except for Andrew, who disagrees. Mm. <laughs> so before we move on to Andrew and Dave talking about The Hateful Eight, we asked people on Twitter this week what they thought of it. So we asked them to give it a rating between 0 and 10. 10 being perfect, 0 being awful. No one rated it between 0 to 2. 27% of people said between 3 and 5. 55% rated it between a 6 and an 8. And 18% of people rated it between a 9 and a 10. So, Dave, Andrew, do you agree that it's between a 6 and an 8? No. I really didn't like The Hateful Eight. I'll be perfectly honest, and I'll say I was watching it, I was so bored, I missed about 20 minutes having fallen asleep. <laughs> now, I don't fall asleep during films ever. It can be one o'clock in the morning, and I've not slept for 48 hours. If I'm watching a film, I'll stay awake for it. I just couldn't stay awake for The Hateful Eight. Well, I've seen it twice. On first viewing, I never thought it was his worst film, but I certainly thought, yeah, I mean, we talked about it earlier, Sally Menke passing, but... Nobody is talking to Tarantino about his choices now. And so he's putting, or it appears that way anyway, so he's putting into films whatever he wants to. And he's got a very high opinion of himself, which is, you know, largely earned. That's fine. And I went to see this film, and it starts with, a, I think, a pretty electric opening scene. I think it's really great. Um, uh, the, the sort of um, st- stagecoach p- pulling up during a blizzard or the start of a blizzard, picking up Samuel L. Jackson, all of that's absolutely terrific. But on first viewing, I could not understand why this is like two hours and 47 minutes long. I genuinely looked at it and thought, well, there's no scenes I want to cut. But if I trim dialogue here and bits and pieces, this film should be about 30 minutes shorter. At a push, maybe two and a half hours. It's definitely designed to be a long film. But I went to see it again today, and I know what's coming now when I watch it. So the mystery element of the film is better set up than it was to be, or than I saw it as being set up in my first viewing. I think it's really good. I think I do think it's bottom half. I mean, he's if you count the Kill Bill films separately, 
then he's done nine films. And certainly, if you think of the top four, it's not in that. But it's the best Samuel L. Jackson performance since Jackie Brown. Walter Goggins is fantastic in it. Kurt Russell's terrific in it. I think his dialogue pops terrifically well. I think we've had the best speech in a Tarantino film from Samuel L. Jackson since Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction. I think it's an extremely confident film. My only concern with it is I think he's starting to outgrow the medium in that Tarantino can't put a two-hour film out anymore. And I do wonder if he'd be better off with like novels and miniseries. Maybe he did this over like eight hours on HBO. And that's kind of the way I feel about this film. I think that he's doing what he can with this format. It's a format he loves, but it's a format he doesn't fit anymore. I would, I would certainly say that the opening scene is, it is amazing. And it's beautiful as well. The whole film is just gorgeous. Every outside shot in this movie, it just, it makes you salivate. It looks so nice. But I think you're right. And I think he doesn't quite know where to hold himself back. And I, I think he, he needs someone opposite him that can tell him that this shouldn't be here or that shouldn't be there. I, if it wasn't for the fact that it's so poignant to the rest of the film, I would say remove everything that Channing Tatum is in because, man, that dude annoyed me in that film. I actually really like the flashback. My problem was not actually in the second half. The only things I would even dream of cutting are in the first half. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think they take far too long to get to the haberdashery and I yeah. think they take far too long to get to the, quote, mystery. Although yeah. on second viewing, you can see... Samuel L. Jackson looking at things and looking in directions. A bit, it's a bit like watching The Usual Suspects the second time. That you, you see him looking at things, and because you know what it is, you actually yeah. realise that the mystery has and the solving of the mystery has started before you would even know it was there the first time. Genuinely, just going to say that, like a bit like watching Pulp Fiction for the second time mm. or Usual Suspects for the second time. When you know how everything melts together it must be better, better it's much it. better on the second viewing now the thing is a lot of people will be put off by the running time well, and if they don't like it they'll go oh, do i really want to sit through three hours again but i promise you, you i looked at i looked at my watch and i try not to do this in the cinema because it can either be dispiriting or distracting but i looked at my watch and i think i thought about 35 minutes had gone by and we were past an hour so on second viewing it zips by quite nicely it really does on first viewing when you're trying to like figure out what the film's about and who's important and who isn't you get to certain bits and you get the mystery you think well what was the point of everything that came before well if you watch it again well lots of little bits are being unfolded to you this is actually a really really fine film now i still don't think it should be two hours and 47 but instead of thinking cut half an hour out of it I actually now think about quarter of an hour. I think if you cut this down to two and a half hours, you trim a bit of fat on it, and it would be really, really good. And one of the things I will say that has been a hallmark of his career, everybody is fantastic in this. Everybody. I mean, Bruce Dern, terrific. Jennifer Jason Lee, I'm always tempted to say Mary Stewart. Was something been, she, she was nominated. Yeah, for again, something yeah, from Jennifer Jason Lee's fantastic in this everybody's wonderful in it and it's the best Samuel L. Jackson performance since Jackie Brown for me and I've seen most things he's in it's actually a very good film but 
unlike something like Inglorious Bastards, where I walked out going, that was fantastic. It took me two viewings to see it. It's too long, but yeah. it's terrific. Two two viewings is okay if it's a ninety minute movie. You know what I mean? And it's and I would, I absolutely would. You know, when it comes out on Blu-ray, I'll go out and buy it, or I'll rent it, or something, and I'll sit and watch it again. And maybe it'll be better, but because it's Tarantino, and you can't, doesn't matter how much you might have not liked Django Unchained, and how much I didn't like this one, I you have to give him a chance and try it again, but. I now have to carve out three hours from a day somewhere to watch a film that I've already watched and said I didn't like. Yeah, but let's be honest, most of us sit and do fuck almost. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not that hard. True. <laughs> you know, three hours, oh my God. I've just been scratching my ass for four hours. What's the problem? <laughs> you know, I mean, you must be is, sore, man. <laughs> uh, no, not literally, but... <laughs> I would say, though, I mean, and this is... I've been a fan of his for a long, long time, but Walt Goggins in Hateful Eight was just spectacular. I know him. I've watched him for years in The Shield. He's really good, and he he plays you know a whiny little nasty little bastard in it, and he's very very good in it. But you know he's turned up. I'm pretty sure he was an American Ultra last year. The, 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 I mean, what I think we can say, and I don't know if you'd agree with this, Andrew, but everybody in it's terrific. Everybody delivers their lines as well as you can imagine them being delivered. The film sounds beautiful as well. I mean, it's got a really really nice score. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah. it looks beautiful as well. So on the technical level, this film's fantastic. Absolutely, and it is. And this, but Tarantino's always been able to do this, and you can see that, can't you, across all of his films, from the the, the noir little one-room films like Reservoir Dogs through Kill Bill to this. You know, it doesn't matter what he's doing or where he's filming it; everything looks gorgeous. Wouldn't this be a good bookend on his career? And what I mean by that is, it's his eighth film, and he talks about doing ten. But yeah. isn't this a bookend to Reservoir Dogs? Yeah. This is Tarantino's 2015 equivalent of Reservoir Dogs. Yep, I'd agree with that, absolutely. I don't know where he goes from here. I don't think he can better himself anymore. I don't think he'll ever get better than Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs or Inglorious Bastards. But the, I do think he's in very serious... It's very, it's very seriously likely that he will go down a little bit. Because like I said, you said it as well, every other film you walk out and you know that was brilliant. And this one I walked out and went... Nah. I didn't walk out going, that was shit. I just walked out going, nope, didn't really like that. And I, I think there's a real chance of him going, getting even worse. I just think, like, if he could embrace, I mean, you can shoot it on 70mm, you can shoot it on IMAX, you can do whatever you want with it, but, like, give the guy, like, a Netflix series of, like, eight episodes yep. and say, do whatever you want. Because yeah. I think he's outgrowing this format, and I don't mean in quality, because I still think like films are a senior format to TV, I genuinely do. Yeah. But I don't think he can do what he wants to do with narrative and characters and the chapter structure he does. He can't do it in a traditional running time. And I'm starting to worry, how long is the next one going to be? This film is slightly too long. I mean, it is. It's not as too long as I thought it was. Is the next one going to be three and a half hours? Where are we going to end up with this guy? That, like, everything he does is gold and he doesn't know where to draw the line? This film's a little bit too long, but it's better than I thought it was on first viewing. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for your thoughts on Hateful Eight. But see, Emma, see it, genuinely. See it if you can. I think I think I will, because I, I have heard quite diverse of opinions on it, so I think I will go check it out. Of course, to all our listeners, let us know what you thought about the Hateful Eight. Who do you agree with, Dave or Andrew? You decide. And speaking of Dave versus Andrew, it's quiz time. I didn't write these questions. 
So it's whoever answers first. Sorry, eight, seven questions. Question number one. In Reservoir Dogs, when asked about Mr. Blue, Joe Colbert says he's dead as who? Dillinger. Well done. He did well indeed. Done. Dillinger, and it's as an in-joke because the actor, Lawrence Tierney, played Dillinger in the 1940s. Okay. Question two. When Mia orders her shake in Pulp Fiction, <coughs> Steve Buscemi, as the waiter, asks her if she wants it, what? Oh, shit. Oh, I can't remember the first one. Or something like that. I, we can't remember. I don't it's think. something or Martin and Lewis, and I can't remember the first one. Yeah, it is Martin and Lewis, but I can't remember the first one. No. It's um, Martin and Lewis or Amos and Andy. I in reference, reference to two old shows featuring white comedians and black comedians basically asking vanilla or chocolate. All right. Question three. The name of the bride in Kill Bill is what? Beatrice Kiddo. Indeed it is. Wow, nice. One apiece. What is the license plate number on Stuntman Mike's Dodge Charger in Death Proof? Oh, God, no idea. Not not a clue. It's 938-D-A-N. Question five. What does Hugo Stiglitz knife in Inglorious Bastards have written on it? Uh, it's not a Samuel L. Jackson thing, is it? It's not got Bad Motherfucker written on it or something like that. <laughs> that would be cool. Uh, no idea. No, not a clue. All right. I'm going to butcher this now. It is minor... Heide, heisty, something. I'm sorry to anyone who speaks German. Basically, it means loyalty is my honour. I watched that last night. And I <laughs> anyway, carry on. It would have been better if I just said bad motherfucker. Mm. Uh, question six. In Django and Chains, how much in US dollars is paid for Broomhilda's freedom? Oh, uh, 12000 Well done. It is indeed $12,000, which is $318,000 today adjusted for inflation. Wow. Tony wouldn't have done the math on that. <laughs> He did indeed. Final question, number seven. Mexican Bob, a character in The Hateful Eight, is also the name of a character in which 1969 Western? Once Upon a Time in the West? Nope. The Wild Bunch? Nope. <laughs> I'm just naming Westerns from that fucking era that I can think of. Yeah, keep going. You've done, like, the one that I know, so I, I The won't. one that you know? Oh, God. Uh, True Grit. Yes, True Grit. So, at the end of that, the score stand at Andrew won, and Dave is our winner with three points. Okay, stick that on the do you expect us to talk total and let's see if that goes top. Right, so that's that's all we've got time for for this evening. I'd like to thank Andrew Cavero and Steve Aldersley for our nominations for this evening. And I'd also like to thank Andrew and Dave for joining me. Dave, Andrew, tell us where we can find you on the internet. Uh, you can find me at thepastykid1976 on Twitter, facebook.com forward slash thepastykid. I'm normally on a po- uh, well, it's, at the moment it's a James Bond retrospective, but it's basically a film retrospective podcast. We'll move on. Uh, we are at Expect Us to Talk on Twitter. We are facebook.com forward slash Expect Us to Talk. And if you look us up under Do You Expect Us to Talk on uh, iTunes or Stitcher, you'll find us. I am at Brooker411 on Twitter, and that is pretty much the only place you'll find me doing anything. I write and occasionally podcast for another film podcast, Failed Critics, that pretty much I guess everybody that listens to this knows. Uh, that's me. I don't do much outside of those. <laughs> you can find Pick a Flick on Twitter at Pick a Flick Pod. We're also on the Facebook. We are part of the Black Hole Media Network, which also hosts, the, hosts our old podcast. Black Hole Cinema, 
the X-Cast, which is an X-Files podcast, and soon to be my own podcast, Deadbeat, when I get around to recording it. So what's Deadbeat about? Tell us. <laughs> I heard rumours about this. It, Dead Meat is going to be basically a crash course in horror academic theory. So we'll be just, nice. we are going our first episode, which is going to be recorded recorded this week, maybe. Okay, are you having guests and stuff? I am having guests. My first guest is my brother Thomas. <laughs> awesome. When you get to let the right one in, can I come on? Of course you can. Uh, we are going to do Final Girl Theory, which is what I've read. I'm doing my master's degree on at the minute so I'm being driven mad by it we're going to do body horror we're going to talk about nature versus nurture in serial killer films all kinds of cool things not just reviews of new releases or old releases it's going to be awesome it's going to be out every month or so until September because that's when I finish my emeras but yeah you can follow us at you can follow us on Twitter at Dead Meat Horror I haven't tweeted them much though so you can follow me at Crushinator2 on Twitter but I say this every time I basically tweet about my impending nervous breakdown over my masters and about how much I love the WWE Tag Team Champions The New Day I'm not much fun thank you everyone for listening thank you for your nominations keep them coming and I will see you soon bye deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.